At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lift or Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. In last week's episode, we took a look at the world of the Gilded Age's famous balls from what they meant on a social level to what you could expect once you made your own grand entrance. We looked at several of the most famous society soirees from Ward McAllister's Patriarch's Balls to Mrs. Astor's annual opera ball to Alva Vanderbilt's society-busting costume extravaganza, and we ended with James Hazen Hyde's evening at Versailles that unfortunately led to his financial and social downfall. But there is one ball without which we couldn't possibly tie up our discussion of the Gilded Age's grandest parties. I left it out last week because I wanted to dedicate an entire show to understanding all of what went on. And as you will see, my guest today has a very special perspective on it all. So put on your finest evening dress and join me for one more night at the ball. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where we journey into corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Caroline Astor didn't like being jostled, but jostled she was. Sitting in her carriage, encrusted in diamonds, swathed in velvet and fur, and likely accompanied by her son and daughter-in-law, she looked out onto Fifth Avenue as they approached 34th Street. Even for the Mrs. Astor, this was quite an event. Never before in her reign as society queen had she ever attended a ball not given in a private home. The streets had become filled with other carriages slowly proceeding along as they traveled down the avenue. They were about to join the line in front of the Waldorf Hotel, but now they were at a near standstill. It was the night of February 10th, 1897, and New York's often brutal winter season had delivered a snowy, stormy night, which didn't help clear the carriage congestion. In front of the great entrance to the Waldorf, as the time approached 11 p.m., carriage after carriage continued to discharge their contents. The highest levels of what was still thought of as Gilded Age society had been transformed for this night into a living history book of characters, kings, queens, knights, and nobility, 
Hiking up skirts, holding trains, and brushing snow off highly polished boots, this colorful cast walked up the deep crimson carpet and entered the Waldorf. Cornelia Martin and her husband, Bradley, were giving a ball. The Bradley Martins, they were really just the Martins, but somewhere a hyphen appeared between his given name and his surname, and they became forever known as the Bradley Martins. The Bradley Martins were, in many ways, a very classic Gilded Age story. Neither was born in New York City, and their extraordinary wealth came suddenly and and by surprise, which propelled them to the outer limits of the social stratosphere. Cornelia planned charity events with Caroline Astor, and Bradley was firmly placed in the Gilded Age men's world of finance, horses, and clubs. They were giving a grand ball tonight, but not just any ball. Cornelia had long wanted to offer New York society an event to remember, one that would eclipse the ball that Alva Vanderbilt threw, oh, back in 1883. That was 14 years ago at this point, but make no mistake, under their tiaras and top hats, New York society had a very long memory. But Cornelia had a strategy. The Bradley Martins didn't need to secure their place in society, they were already there. With homes in New York, London, and Scotland, they were firmly established. So just what did this ball really mean? And just what happened? After the ball was over? Through the years, tales have been told of the cases of rare premium champagne that were served, the priceless historic jewels that Cornelia and her guests wore, and historians have offered various versions of the total cost for it all, which we will discuss. And by the way, the Bradley Martin Ball indeed regularly held its place in the Guinness Book of World Records for the most expensive private event ever held. In just a few days, as a matter of fact, on February 10th, 2023, the ball will have its 126th anniversary. My guest today, historian and author Richard J. Hutto, is with me to share the story of how the ball came to be, who the Bradley Martins really were, and what really happened the morning after. I am honored to have as my guest today, historian and author Richard J. Hutto. Rick Hutto served as the White House Appointment Secretary to the Carter family and was chairman of the Georgia Council for the Arts. Rick is the author of six books and has written extensively about the Gilded Age practice of marrying wealthy American heiresses to titled husbands. A former attorney, he is an internationally recognized lecturer and has been featured as an on-air historical expert by Discovery Channel, National Geographic, Investigation Discovery, and now The Gilded Gentleman. Rick, I am so pleased and completely honored to have you join me for this very special show. Thanks so much, Carl. I'm really pleased to be here and honored to be asked. Well, we're going to have a wonderful chat, I just know. So before we dive into the details of this, you offer a truly unique perspective on the Bradley Martins and the ball itself. Can you explain that for listeners? Sure. My wife, Catherine, is the eldest grandchild of Bradley Martin, who was usually referred to as a book collector. 
He, in turn, is the grandson of the Bradley Martins who gave the ball. Uh, in fact, our son is named Bradley Martin Hutto. So uh, it's that direct connection back to it. And that's incredibly important because one rarely has these direct connections these days, right? And that connection actually gave you access to some previously unknown material, at least unknown to the public, which gave you a very special perspective on it. Can you talk about that and what the discovery was and what you actually found? Sure. About 15 years ago, maybe a little more than that, we were helping Catherine's step-grandmother move out of her apartment here in New York down to her home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Uh, and I came across this box, which was heavily taped shut. And I asked her what it was. And she said, oh, that's, those are the ball photographs. And I said, what ball photographs? Uh, and she said that Mrs. Martin's close friends had given her this album after the ball with their own portraits in it in costume, sort of to thank her for having given the ball. And it's been taped up since all that time. And so I asked Mrs. Martin if I could have them professionally copied. And she said, only if you're there. You can't leave it with someone. You have to be in the studio when this is done. Uh, and then she, of course, wanted to make sure that I didn't just distribute them, you know, willy-nilly and give them to anybody to use. So that started the um, interest, if you will, not only in identifying the people in the photographs, none of them were identified in, uh, on the front of the pictures, but there were several that I saw. For example, Alva Vanderbilt, who was then Alva Belmont. I'd never seen this photograph of her, and that's because it's, it had never been published, and I recognized her right away. But that meant that not only writing to descendants of people who did go to the ball and gathering more, but also saying, is this your ancestor? Is this, in fact, your grandfather, your grandmother? And one quick identification from that, there was one that I thought was Stanford White. And I sent it to his granddaughter, who was elderly then, uh, and she answered and said, you know, at first I didn't think so. I didn't think it looked like him. And she said, but I went to this box where he kept all of his costumes and things for parties, and that jacket and the necklace are in the box. And she said, so that's obviously my grandfather. She said, he must have had a rough night. <laughs> <laughs> so you are the caretaker, really, of this collection of, of photographs, some of which have, have since been published, thanks to you and your articles, but some have not. That's right. There were quite a few, that, <clears throat> sorry, that still have not been. Well, we're going to come back and talk about who went and what they wore. But I, for listeners, I would like to really go back to the be beginning here because I think the story of Cornelia and Bradley Martin, and this is really the reason I wanted to do the show, is, yes, about the ball because it was a dramatic, theatrical, certainly, event. But the story is a little bit richer and a little bit deeper. Right. And I wanted to have you come and talk a little bit about the family, their history, what they did. And also one of the things that I love to do in The Gilded Gentleman is really correct some misconceptions, because as you well know, in history and certainly in Gilded Age history, there's there are a lot of things floating around out exactly. there that are just not right. So we're going to do that as our mission today. Good. But what I really want to start off with is just who exactly were Cornelia, well, Cornelia Sherman, but Cornelia and Bradley Martin, and what were their origins? Cornelia Sherman was the daughter of Isaac Sherman, who started making his money in barrel staves, those cur curved pieces of wood, of course, that go around to make a, a barrel. He branched out from that into lumber and then from there into banking. Uh, and in fact, uh, his good friend Abraham Lincoln asked him to be secretary of the Treasury in the second administration. And he said no, that he would rather sort of be on the outside looking in. 
But when he died with only one child, uh, Cornelia, he was thought to be relatively affluent. Uh, in fact, people thought probably about $200,000, but he left $6 million, and he left it, of course, to his only child. And that, of course, would be a much, much larger fortune now than that figure sounds. Well, that was really a defining moment, right? And also, Cornelia and Bradley were not from New York. Was it Albany, northern uh, New York state? Am I correct about that? Right. She was from uh, Troy. He was from Albany. His family had been, uh, they were long in the country. Uh, in fact, his grandmother was a Townsend, as they were fond of saying she was a double Townsend because both of her parents were Townsends. So they were from very, very good stock uh, and all that sort of thing. And those people who later sort of tried to make out the, the Martins as um, sort of nouveau riche and herviste, uh, both Mr. and Mrs. Martin were listed in the 400 along with his brother Frederick. But even before that, Mr. Martin was listed in the patriarchs, which, as you know, is the comes oh, even before the Oh, we're going to get to the patriarchs. I certainly want to talk about that. So essentially... Cornelia Bradley Martin came from from a certain degree of wealth, but once this inheritance right. was discovered, I mean, six million dollars then, and that's probably close to well over a hundred million dollars today. If if my even if more, the, my math is <laughs> our math is good here, right? So that propelled them really into the society of the Gilded Age, right? This this there was new money. It it they were outsiders. They were not you know, from multiple generations of Dutch stock here. So how did Cornelia and Bradley start to maneuver in this well, new world? They first met when she was a bridesmaid at one of the Vanderbilt weddings. Uh, she'd gone to, um, to boarding school with one of the Vanderbilt daughters. So they met at that particular wedding. He later said that he saw her across the room and said, you know, I want her Oh, that's romantic. Her. Exactly. And so they did. Uh, and they were, you know, as I said, they were relatively affluent, but they were not in the level that you were just talking about. Um, but once the once Mr. Sherman died, they built adjoining townhouses on 20th Street, just off uh, 5th. Uh, and they would even do things like have balls in the back, in the backyard. They would put a tent up across the entire back. Um, and they were very fond of doing that and even finally knocked out some of the walls inside the house so that the two townhouses could be together to entertain more easily. That's, I think, interesting because we see that again and again is once one has achieved a certain position in society, you had to entertain. Right. There was no, you'd, yes, people went to Delmonico's and certainly Cornelian Bradley did that or Sherry's or whatever it happened to be. But you really entertained at home. And I find these stories fascinating of these these couples and these families that simply had to, if they weren't going to build their own chateau, as it were, they had to redo their entire house to right. accommodate this entertaining. And that's very much the case right. of what happened here, because you had two essentially federal style townhouses that were converted, correct? Exactly. And in fact, for one ball they gave in the back, uh, they put a tent up, of course, across the back of both of the townhouses. Their insurance company made them take out a really, really expensive insurance policy because it, it was in February. There were heaters of this big, big tent, and they had to pay an enormous amount of money, even though the next morning the tent was all disassembled and taken down. They were afraid of fire, right? Right, exactly. Which was a tremendous concern, no matter what you did at this point. Right? Exactly. Now, Cornelia, it seems, became 
friendly, one could say, with Mrs. Astor. I read at one point that uh, Cornelia actually was on a committee with the Mrs. Astor. And this seems to be very typical for charity work. Is that correct? Absolutely. Um, she was very philanthropic minded. Uh, and so it would have been normal for her to serve on committees with Mrs. Astor. And they were friends. As you know, Mrs. Astor came to the ball and her son, Jack, led the first quadrille with Mrs. Martin. Now, you had said a few minutes ago that Bradley was a member of the Patriarchs. Right. Very important at this time. Right. Can you talk about what the Patriarchs were and what function they served? The Patriarchs um, were the predecessor to the 400, but they were a much, much smaller group. They started out, I think, as 10 or 12 men. Eventually, I think it may have gone up to about 20 or even 25. Mr. Martin was a member, and they were the ones who would give balls during the year. They had a very set number of who they could invite. Uh, and if you really wanted to have your daughter uh, or your son introduced into society, you had to know a Patriarch because they had to invite you. And Mr. Martin, as I said, was was on that list. His brother, Frederick Townsend Martin, who was sort of everybody's extra man, their favorite at dinner parties and that sort of thing. There was never any issue of his having been married. But he was also very much a part of all of this group. So the, the patriarchs did precede, if you will, the 400. Well, I want to back up for just a second and talk about balls in general. Okay. Because we know that Cornelia and Bradley, before we even get to the ball, right. um, you had mentioned that they had thrown balls at their home on 20th Street. Also, Cornelia and Bradley attended, and this will be important, Alva Vanderbilt's ball in 18, right, and we'll get to that in 1883. But what I'd like to have you offer your perspective on, because I think it's very important here, is what was the role of the ball in Gilded Age society? It just wasn't a party. There was a meaning to it. Exactly. There were very few opportunities for example, for young people to meet one another. It was very, very structured. You know, if your mother had not received a card from someone, he or she could not be received. Uh, and so a ball was a place where they could actually all come together, heavily chaperoned, obviously, but they could meet other people. They could be asked to dance. We've, I've even got an invitation from that period that still has the pencil attached on the ribbon because, of course, that would have been used to sign up for a dance uh, when you wanted to dance with someone. So the ball gave that opportunity, or the balls, plural, uh, some small, some large. Uh, but, of course, Alva's was one of the, the uh, great early ones. Now... When we talk about entertaining, I said a few minutes ago that most families did entertain in their homes and either had to have a ballroom or something close enough so they could, maybe they couldn't fit 400 people, but they could certainly fit several hundred. Right. As the restaurant culture began to grow, and certainly Delmonico's, which had started in the 1820s and became the restaurant of the Gilded Age, but also Sherry's, others entered the mix. What was the difference between an entertainment in an institution like Delmonico's or Sherry's or having something at home? Was there any difference in what it meant or the message that it carried? I think that if you entertained at home, it showed that you had that capability. Perhaps, uh, you know, if you were in a smaller space or you didn't have quite as much money, perhaps it was much easier and, in fact, cheaper to go to an, an event in a hotel or a restaurant. Uh, supposedly, Mrs. Astor did not attend things that were that were in commercial establishments, and I'm sure there must have been others who felt the same way. This sort of is under the category, I suppose, of, of myth-busting, but in talking about the Bradley Martins, I found it fascinating to really look at where they spent their time. Right. And they did spend some time in New York, and we'll talk more about that. 
So the Bradley Martin spent a great deal of time in Britain, in England, and certainly in Scotland. And I had read that they had a very long-term lease on really a Scottish castle. Right. Can you talk about that? And can you talk about the, because they spent a lot of time there, right? Can you talk about the world that they created and some of their entertaining uh, in Scotland? Sure. One of the fallacies about the ball was that they, you know, they fled the country uh, in disgrace and moved to England and Scotland. Absolutely not true. They had been there long before. They followed a very strict uh, annual season, if you will, and they would come to New York certain periods of time. But they spent a lot of time already at their house in Chesterfield Gardens in London. Uh, and then Balmacan was there, 65,000 acre uh, estate up along the shores of uh, Loch Ness. Uh, in near Inverness, in the little town of Drumdedruckett, they could actually put up as many as 70 guests at a time. Uh, and there were even overflows in which she would use the hotel in the little village as well. And I'd read at one point that the Bradley Martins actually employed quite a number of village folk when these great entertainments and shooting parties occurred, right? Because you needed extra valets and maids and servants and cooks and all this sort of thing. Can you talk a little bit about what one of those great shooting party weekends would have would have been like, what they would have done? Well, there was one in which uh, Grand Duke Michael uh, Mikhailovich, Mishmish as he was called, of Russia, uh, came with his wife, Countess Torby, and his daughter. Uh, they were there. And of course, there's always the photograph outside, you know, a pose photo and everyone's looking at the camera. But we have also a lot of casual pictures of their, the men sort of going out to shoot and very often the women seated on the ground with baskets of food and everything watching, uh, which is hilarious to me, particularly because there would have been beaters who would push the, the grouse or whatever was being uh, sought. Um, so they really were not, they didn't have to be skilled hunters. This was all sort of done for them. Uh, but someone like Grand Duke Michael, of course, would have come back saying, oh, I shot, you know, 100 of this and 200 of that. Well, yeah, because the, the beaters and all of the uh, people who worked there had pushed them to him. Yeah, sort of. It was a good show, right? right. Is exactly. that what? Yeah, right. And then, of course, there was a, a great dance or a ghillie ball, right? Or or some feast following that. And they, they gave an annual party for all the children in the village. Uh, and at Christmas, they went around giving out gifts to everyone. So you're right. They ended up employing most of uh, the entire area. The, the people who were working for them stretched over a long period of time. And they're still very, very kindly remembered. Their pictures are up in the little town hall there. Well, you and I, when we were chatting the other day, I love this because I asked you, I said, so Balmacan unfortunately doesn't exist anymore, but you've been to the site, you've been to the town. What was that like? It was great fun. We organized it, I'd say, 15 years ago, about, I think, about 30 members of the family all went over. Uh, and of course, as you said, Balmacan is no longer there, but there are things like the coach house is still there. So we walked from the village up uh, and then there was actually a presentation in the town hall where Mr. and Mrs. Martin's pictures still hang. Uh, there was a Kaylee, you know, an event with singers and dancers and all that sort of thing. Uh, it was really great fun. Uh, it, it made everyone realize how important that period of their history is. We're going to work our way up to the ball, I promise. But really talk about another important moment, an important event in the life of the Bradley Martins, and that's the marriage of their daughter, Cornelia. Mm -hmm. And this occurred in 1893. And what's fascinating to me about this is, and you've done a great deal of writing about this, of course, is this fashion, shall we call it, of wealthy young American women marrying titled European aristocrats, 
for all the reasons that we understand. Well, right. Cornelia and Bradley did that too. They married their their only daughter. And can you talk about that? Because she was young. She married fourth Earl of Crave. How did this all come about? When you look at the guest book for Balmacan, two days after young Cornelia turned 16, one of the people who signed the guest register as a guest at Balmacan was the fourth Earl of Craven. He had come into the title rel relatively young. He had lots of estates, but no money. But he showed up. He was very handsome. Uh, and as I sh said, Cornelia had only been 16 for two days at that point. Uh, and before the end of the year, they were engaged. Uh, Mrs. Martin and the Cravens wanted the event, the, the marriage, to take place in London. Mr. Martin said, no, we are an American family. Our money was made in America. We're going to have the wedding in America. And so some of the Cravens came over for it. They were married here. And what was interesting was at the end of the ceremony, the police had been holding back lots and lots of bystanders on the street. They all wanted to catch a glimpse. As soon as the wedding party uh, was able to make its way into the carriages and pulled away, the police lines gave way and people just came rushing into the church and tearing things like floral tributes, uh, you know, and wisteria vine, uh, all as uh, souvenirs from the wedding. Uh, but then a few days later, when the uh, the young couple left to go to England, so did Mr. and Mrs. Martin, so did their son, the, both of their sons at the time they had two. Uh, one died relatively soon after that. But they all went together uh, back over to London and then up to Scotland as part of the honeymoon. Now, I have two questions I want to ask you about this. One is, what was it about William, I believe was his name, the fourth Earl of Craven? What made him such an attractive catch for Cornelia? Well, he was an earl. Uh, he was an English earl. And as you, you may know, I use this um, memory device, do men ever visit Boston? And that's the peerage in reverse order, Duke, Marquis, Earl, Viscount, Baron. So, Rick, you have changed my life and that of all my <laughs> listeners. I really have to say that's brilliant. Thank you. But so the earl is, you know, Two levels above, for example, Princess Diana's American great-grandmother married an Irish baron, so, you know, down at the bottom of the list. But anyway, Craven was an earl. He was also an English earl, and that mattered because the first thing he wanted was English, second Scottish, third Irish. Um, he had estates. No one could accuse him of being, you know, absolutely destitute, as so many of these people were. But he did need money to keep up those estates. And he, as I said, was very handsome, and it all worked out. The only reason, in fact, that they didn't, the Earl and uh, Countess, didn't come over for the ball in 1897 is because Cornelia was pregnant uh, with her only child, the eventual fifth Earl, called Uffy, uh, for the second title, which is Viscount Uffington. Uh, so he was called Uffy. And was it a good marriage? Uh, how do I put this? The Cravens were not a good investment for the Martins. They... They spent everything that was left uh, of the, the Martin money, but they did, as I said, produce an, an heir who, in fact, in turn had an heir. Uh, but you get all the way down to the current uh, Earl. He is about 40, unmarried. Uh, and his only heir is in his 90s, lives up in the top of Scotland, and has been married twice and has no children. So there is a very real possibility that the earldom will become extinct. Oh, well. The other thing I want to ask you is the wedding took place at Grace Church, yes. which is really only a couple of blocks from where we are here recording in the library of the Selma Gundy Club. During the Gilded Age, where you were christened, where you were married, and where your funeral was, all meant something. Exactly. It carried a message. 
So the fact that Cornelia and Bradley had the wedding of Cornelia to William IV, Earl of Craven, at Grace Church sent a message. Right. Can you talk a little bit about what that message was and why Grace Church was the choice? Well, as I said earlier, Mr. Martin insisted that they had the, the wedding here in New York. Uh, and so I think what Mrs. Martin then did was to say, well, then we're going to make a statement. We're going to show that if, in fact, the marriage is here, it will happen in the church with the minister, um, because it was, as you said, sort of the, the society place to be to be married at the time. Several of the uh, American heiresses were married there as well. Consuelo Isnaga for one of them. Also, Wharton uses it. Edith Wharton right. uses it and sets one of the most important scenes in Age of Innocence there, the marriage exactly. of Newland and... Yeah. And may well and now it's been suggested in some writing that Cornelia and Bradley were, and this was the 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 comment, the most conspicuous examples of American society imitating the aristocratic British lifestyle. What do you say to that? Would you agree with that or not? I don't think so. Uh, people love to hold them up sort of to ridicule. I mean, for example, after the ball, saying that they were run out of town because everyone was, uh, you know, was. Uh, critical of them. That's actually not true, but it sounds good. And so it's been repeated over and over and over. I don't think the Martins were any worse than anyone else. Uh, one of the things that I went back and checked meticulously, someone back in the 40s referred to them uh, as saying they had the slow growth of an imaginary hyphen in their name between Bradley and Martin because they were trying to be uh, much more pretentious. Well, I went back and checked. I can't find anything, certainly the, the invitations to the ball, the invitations to the wedding, their correspondence. At no time did, did they do that. But of course, now, all these year, years later, it sounds good. And so people refer to it as well. Can you explain anything about the hyphen? Because Cornelia was her first name. Bradley was his first name. Martin was their last name. Exactly. But they were still referred to as the Bradley hyphen Martins. Exactly. Do we know anything about how that only because, you know, many British families have hyphenated names. You know, some of them you'll have one, a man with two names marrying a woman with two names and the children end up with four. And so a lot of people seem That's to... That's a lot of grammar in a name, <laughs> exactly. don't you think? Yeah. That's right. But so a lot of people said that they had done that to make themselves look more British. But as I said, I, I cannot find a single instance in which they did that. And with that, Rick and I are going to take a quick break. And when we return, Rick and I will take you to the ball. At the UPS store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Coco Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. 
then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today, author and historian Rick Hutto and I are taking a look at the Gilded Age's most famous ball held in 1897 by Rick's own great-grandparents-in-law, the Bradley Martins. So, Rick, all of this that we've just been talking about brings us to the actual ball of 1897. So I think the most important thing that we have to get out here is what was the actual impetus on the part of Cornelia and Bradley for creating this really exceptional event? In 1897, there was a very serious economic recession um, and Mr. and Mrs. Martin were at breakfast one morning with his brother, Freddie. They were trying to think of some way to do something to alleviate uh, the, the pain that was being felt by sort of average New Yorkers. Obviously, they were not feeling it. Uh, but Mr. Martin said, let's have a concert and we will give the money that we raise to the poor. Uh, Mrs. Martin said, no, we need to get it directly into the hands of the, the tradespeople who actually need it rather than wor working through some committee. So she decided to give a ball uh, to send the invitations out relatively quickly uh, so that people wouldn't have time to ride away to Mr. Worth in Paris and get their costumes made, although two or three did. Uh, and so that would put milliners and dressmakers and tailors to work in New York. And it happened. That's exactly what happened. They raised a great deal of money because the event itself was expensive. Uh, you know, there's supposedly a total of about 369000 that was spent by the Martins, which translates to about $10 million today. But this is the important part. That does not include the costumes. That doesn't include the jewelry, all of those things. And so the, the, um, the people here in New York were put to work doing all that, sewing. And in fact, even on the, the night of the ball, when they arrived, there were dressing rooms with wardrobe people there to assist them if they needed quick touch-ups or whatever. Oh, I want to go to that kind of ball, right? Good. Now, one of the things I think was really interesting was that Cornelia was very specific. It was really a PR campaign about releasing details of this to create interest in the city. And of course, all the pages of the society papers covered this. But there was some backlash. There was some concern about this supposed extravagance, even from some of the pulpits in the city. Can you talk a little bit about what that was? Reverend Rainsford, uh, who was J.P. Morgan's minister, preached that this was conspicuous consumption at its worst. Uh, and in fact, that the amount of money they spent on the ball could have been just handed out and given to the poor instead. What's interesting about that is that Reverend Rainsford was J.P. Morgan's minister. The Morgans gave a dinner party the night of the ball, and three of their children went in costume to the ball. And so it was one thing for, for the Morgans minister to preach against it, uh, but obviously the family did not agree with him. Now, can you talk a little bit about the guest list? It was about a thousand invitations. Am I correct about that? About, about 1,200 total. So who got invited and who didn't? Well, interestingly enough, Mrs. Martin did not have the same prejudice that um, Mrs. Astor did. So she, in fact, did invite actors and artists and Jewish um, attendees, none of which Mrs. Astor did. 
there were a few few people that um, made made it difficult. For example, one of her cousins came, and he was in flesh tights that were very, very tight. Uh, and when he arrived, he came as the falconer. It was later written by Elsie DeWolf that after Mrs. Martin regained her breath, he was asked to leave. But in fact, you know, she did invite people like that. Uh, and also a lot of her, her son was then at Harvard. Uh, he had finished at uh, Oxford and was at Harvard Law at that point. And so a lot of his friends came down as well and went. So, Rick, can you talk a little bit about just what that night was like? I mean, it was a cold night in February, February 10th of 1897. So what would the scene outside of the Waldorf have been like if we'd been standing in that crowd waiting for all these arrivals? Well, it, what, there was a terrible snowstorm that night, um, and the, the ball supposedly started at 10, but no one came before 11. Um, when they were able to get inside through the snow, there were dressing rooms for them to touch up their costumes. There were people like hairdressers available. Then they walked on in and Mrs. Martin was seated on a dais on a raised platform. She had brought her Beauvais tapestries from home, which were hanging behind her. Uh, a footman announced each attendee not only by their own name, but by the costume they were representing. Uh, and at that point, they moved on into the, the main ballroom. Uh, Dinner was, of course, there'd been all these dinner parties beforehand. Uh, people didn't necessarily need to eat, but there was a full, huge dinner served at about one in the morning. There were uh, lots of dances during the night, and there was even breakfast served the next morning if people still wanted it. And there were some who still were there. Oh, I bet there were. Now, can you talk a little bit about what the decor was inside? I had read that they had tried to recreate the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles and the descriptions of the flowers and the floral garlands and the trees. And the, I mean, it really must have been extraordinary. Well, they brought 6,000 mauve orchids from Florida in February. Uh, and that sort of was the centerpiece of what was done. There was lots and lots of hanging vines. Uh, and it, you're right, they tried to make it look rather like Versailles. Uh, several people commented on it, although some of them have said it since then, oh, well, people were told to come in French costumes of that period. No, they were not. They were told to come in costumes of the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Nothing said about being French. I read at one point there were quite a number of Madame de Pompadours, and there were a few, you know, there were some French characters exactly. uh, multiplied around the room. So, Rick, the food, I'm always fascinated by the food at these balls. First of all, what was actually served? And second of all, how on earth you managed to eat any of it, whether you were wearing a corset or a hoop skirt, but we'll leave that to history. But can you talk about anything that we know about what was served and what was drunk? Well, they, they had cases and cases of champagne that they had been uh, holding just for this. Evidently, she'd had the idea before, perhaps, because uh, all of that was served. I've forgotten the exact number of cases, uh, but whatever was necessary was there. There was every kind of food, cold food, hot food. Uh, and as I said earlier, even if that didn't sate you, then you could still wait for breakfast because that was served as well. I always imagine these because a ball often was a buffet. Right. Um, except Mrs. Astor, she liked to sit down dinner. But most of the time, a ball was was a buffet. And I just try to imagine people in their costumes maneuvering around tables of, you know, I'd seen a list at one point. There was Lobster Newberg and, of course, Canvasback Duck, ubiquitous, of course, and exactly. Terrapin. Yep. Um, Turtle soup. Of course, chicken stuffed with truffles, all of this, never mind all the sweets and all the rest of it. Um, 
And there always was a dish named for Queen Victoria, right? You, uh, couldn't, you couldn't not have a dish named for Queen Victoria. That's right. Now, let's get to the costumes because certainly the most notable element, I think, of this entire event were the costumes that people had created and wore. And the thing that's interesting is you didn't just go and buy one. You, you had this created Absolutely. and designed. So can you talk about what some of the costumes were and what they looked like and what they entailed and what some of your favorites are from the photographs that you have now? Well, most people followed her instructions about how to come and what period dress. But my favorite one was Kate Bryce, whose father, of course, Calvin Bryce, had been uh, not only the uh, U.S. vice president, but U.S. senator as well. They did not follow instructions. They sent off to Mr. Worth in Paris for her costume to be made. It was an exact replica um, of an Infanta painted by Velasquez. Uh, and it arrived on the day of the ball and crated uh, it was so large and wide that she had to be lowered into it from the top. Uh, and of course, she spent most of the evening standing there because you, you can't possibly dance if you're in something like that. Just as many of the men had swords hanging on their costumes, and when they tried to dance, they were falling all over themselves. Um, evidently, it was uh, rather humorous to see all of these men trying to be serious and yet falling over their swords. I told you they couldn't get near that buffet table. I just <laughs> Absolutely. know it. And one of the guests, you'll tell me which one, Someone showed up in a suit of armor lined with gold that he barely could walk in. Am I That's correct right. about that? That was Oliver Hazard Perry Belmont, uh, Alva Vanderbilt's um, husband. He came in and at one point evidently fell over. It was so heavy. Um, but the one of the London papers two days later commented on the fact that of how much that particular suit of armor had cost. And someone asked, were all of the ticket prices uh, attached to the costumes? Uh, but Obviously, somehow someone knew how much that particular one had cost. It was $10,000. Now the jewelry. We have to talk about the jewelry. One of the details that I love is that uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, at this time was the head of the Metropolitan Police, and he had actually dispatched officers and detectives costumed with powdered wigs and 18th century attire to wander around during the ball sort of incognito right. because the jewels that were walking in there were really extraordinary. I'd read that Cornelia herself wore about $2 million in today's money of jewelry. Can you talk about what she had and what how she was costumed? Mrs. Martin was the largest purchaser of the crown jewels, the French crown jewels at the fall of the Second Empire. Tiffany worked on her behalf, purchased them, and then redid them. She wore a lot of them that evening. Uh, and people, of course, were commenting, commenting on the fact that former queens, of course, had worn these tiaras and that sort of thing. So they all sort of tried to outdo one another that evening as well. Yeah, I read actually that apparently Caroline Astor outdid Cornelia in terms of the value of her jewels. That's right. Walking in. Yeah. And Cornelia apparently had two bracelets that originally belonged to Marie Antoinette that she used as a choker. Is that correct? That is absolutely correct. And where is that now? Those are actually at the Louvre. Um, much uh, of, the, of the jewelry was sold over the years, mainly went through the Cravens and you know, auction here and there. But those two are actually at the Louvre. Um, there's only really one piece left, the Sevigné brooch, uh, which is still in the family. Oh, that's good. I'd hang on to that, right? Yeah. Absolutely. Unfortunately, not my, not our branch of the family, well, but it's in the family. Well, maybe you can borrow it. I don't know. Maybe your wife <laughs> can borrow it. So when all was said and done, you had alluded to this a little bit earlier, 
and everything was toted up for at least the expenditure of the the Bradley Martins. What was the price tag in today's money ballpark of what this cost? The the best estimate that we've seen of what they actually spent, and this does not include the costumes, the jewelries, was about three hundred and sixty nine thousand dollars, which today would be somewhere between ten and twelve million dollars for one evening. Well. It was the party to be at, right? It was. Now, there was certainly some mixed press following the event as well. And again, this this idea, which you've mentioned that I would really like to correct, which I think we are, that they were run out of town after this. That really isn't true. What happened? What happened was they went back to England as they did every year. They, of course, had their grandson coming. He was born just a few months later. They obviously wanted to be there for that. Uh, and he was. But then they again, they came back here. Mr. Martin died here in New York. Uh, the, the people who talk about the fact that they left the country permanently, that there's no basis for that whatsoever. Which is why I wanted to really talk with you about this setup that we did about their life in, right. in Britain and in Scotland. This idea of going back and forth and spending significant periods of time in both places really was the reality of their life, not that they exactly. had to dash off in the dark of night. Right. One question that has really become sort of a trademark question on the Gilded Gentleman um, for my guests is one that I want to ask you too. Okay. And that's if Cornelia and Bradley were sitting right here in the library of the Selma Gundy Club with us. Is there anything you'd like to ask them directly? What would you like to know? I would like to ask her to look at my unidentified pictures of those who attended uh, and Please, please tell me who they are, because obviously there are some in that that book that were given to her who were her close friends. And yet I, over the years, have not been able to identify them positively. Well, it's a mystery that will still go on. Right. Correct. Absolutely. Now, Rick, you are a noted writer and historian. You have written a number of books about this period and different aspects. One of them which we have talked a little bit about today, is this notion of the American heiresses marrying into uh, British and European aristocracy. What is it that intrigues you about that particular story and the politics, both social, economic, and political, of what was going on then? When I was fortunate enough to serve in the White House, um, I went as one of the four official representatives to Her Majesty's Silver Jubilee celebration in England in 77. That made me a committed Anglophile. Um, Absolutely. uh, There's nothing else you could say about me that would be any more true than that. We agree. (laughs) Good. But then when I met my wife, uh, and of course we were dating, and I'm such a historian, I love looking through correspondence and all that. When I discovered that her great aunt had been married off at 16, uh, I asked her grandmother about it, and she said, yes, one day she was playing with dolls, and the next she was engaged. She was told, uh, you have to do this. And I thought, good Lord, what was the purpose of this? Uh, Why did all of these people have to do this? And so, of course, I started researching uh, and found out that there were some love matches, fortunately, uh, but most were not. Uh, Most of them were pretty crass exchanges of monies for titles. I think that's something that deserves a lot of explanation, a lot of, of discussion. I did a show a few months ago on the Consuelo Vanderbilt wedding. Right. And the lives of these women were really quite sad in, in often in exactly. so many cases. Rick, thank you so much for joining me today. I am so grateful to you for telling the story as it was and really setting the record straight here in a couple of places. Thank you so much for being on The Gilded Gentleman today. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. It's been 
our pleasure, I assure you. And to my listeners, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was produced and edited by Kieran Gannon. I invite you to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash thegildedgentleman. Your support is crucial to the continuation of the show. Your help supports the costs of the research, the studio rentals, the production costs, and it allows me to write and record the show. I couldn't do it without you. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more. An extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP.